Let's turn our attention again to James chapter 6, beginning in verse, sorry, James chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, okay? 3, 6. Here we go. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. What does does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The man writes, I was a freshman in high school. I was walking home on a Friday afternoon down the street toward my house, and I saw this kid that was in one of my classes I didn't know. I looked at him, he had glasses on, he was scrawny, and he was carrying a load full of books. His arms were weighed down by books. And I thought to myself, what a nerd. Who would carry that many books home anytime, let alone Friday? I had plans. I had a party Friday night, football game Saturday, and this guy is going home to study. As I began to divert my eyes from him, I noticed out of the corner of one of my eyes a gang of guys coming toward him, and I looked, and they knocked him over, and his books flew everywhere, his glasses flew off. And so instinctively, I ran over to him, and I picked up his glasses, and I said, are you okay? Those guys are real jerks. They ought to get a life. He looked up at me from the ground and gave me a smile and said, hey, thanks. And while we collected his books and started to carry them down the street, I said to him, what's your name? He said, it's Kyle. He said, well, why haven't I seen you on the street before? And he says, probably because it's only been this year that I've started at public school before I was in private school. And I thought to myself, if I knew he's a private school kid, I would have let him lay on the ground. (laughs) I said, well, where do you live? 
Turned out he only lived a couple of streets from me. And so as we both carried his books, I said to him, what are you doing this weekend? You want to come to a party and go to a football game with me? And he said, yeah, and we met my friends and they liked him. Now normally, um, I don't do this. But Monday morning rolls around and I see him on the street with all the books in his hand. So I run up behind him and I said, hey, Kyle, you're going to develop some real muscles if you keep carrying those books around. Give me some of them. And so I took some of his books and carried him into school. Over the next few years, we became pretty close friends. And when he got into pre-med at Georgetown, I said, see, you are a nerd. And then he really became a nerd because he graduated as valedictorian and it was his job to give the commencement speech and I was glad it wasn't me. So we get to that auditorium and I see him walking up toward the stage and I hit him on the back and I say, hey, no nerves, buddy. He smiled at me and said, thanks. So I watched him take his seat. I thought, man, that kid is no longer a nerd. I mean, look at him. He's big and good-looking. In fact, he's a real ladies' man. He has more dates than me. Time came for him to walk to the podium, and he did, and he cleared his throat. And He said, graduation day is normally a day in which you thank people who've helped you along the way, like parents or grandparents. Sometimes it's a coach. Sometimes it's a teacher or two. Sometimes it's even a group of friends. And while I stand here today thankful to all of them, there is one person I'd like to thank more than anybody else. The guy said, I'm listening to his speech, and all of a sudden he starts telling the story about the day we met. He said it was a Friday afternoon. I'd cleaned out my locker. I was carrying all of my books back to my house because I planned to kill myself that weekend. Suddenly, all over the auditorium, there was a hush. He said, yeah, I'd cleaned out my locker so my mother wouldn't have to do it after I was gone. I'm walking home, and a group of guys jump me, and my books fly out of my arms, my glasses fly off my face, and all of a sudden, a guy walks over, runs over, picks up my glasses and said, are you okay? Those guys are real jerks. They ought to get a life. It was an exact quote. And then he said, that day I got a life, thanks to the words of my best friend. And then the guy says, think of it. It was four years after that Friday, and he remembered those words exactly. You know what else? After 45 years, the guy who wrote that story remembered every detail too. If you've lived very long, you know how important words are. And if you're a Christian, you know how really important words are. And James is a Christian. In fact, he's the leader of the church, and he spends more than a chapter talking about the power of our words. 
And the reason he knows they're powerful is he knows that words don't begin in our mouth, they begin in our heart. And what he's telling us today in this text is they don't just begin in our heart and go to our mouth, they also affect our minds. Because James knows that when God made us, he made us for relationships. And so it's about relationships that James is writing here in the end of chapter 3. He's talking about wise relationships. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the first thing he says is a wise relationship is always healing. Verses 9 and 10, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. You know, if you read this in the original language, you see that he's using words of indignation. He is ticked. And the reason he's mad is he knows the power of words. Words can either heal or wound. Words are either true in their love or they're true in their hatred. Decades ago when I finished graduate school, I became a policy analyst and an economist in Dade County, Florida. And while I was there, the first year I met a man who said he had a Matthew 5.11 file. And I said, a what? He said, I've got a Matthew 5.11 file. And I said, tell me what it's like. He said, well, it's in my desk. Every time I get a letter that is full of hate and criticism and discouragement, I always put it in the file. And the reason I put it in the file is because I try to remember at that point what Jesus says in Matthew 5.11. Remember what he says? It's the second half of the eighth beatitude. He says this, blessed are you when you are reviled, when you're persecuted, when people utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, the reason Jesus gives that beatitude as the eighth one is because eight means something to the Hebrews. You know what eight means? Eight was the number of new beginnings. Eight was the number of starting over. Eight was the number of having a clean slate. And so what Jesus is saying is, when someone curses you, bless me. For your reward is already great in heaven. Now, that's exactly what James is saying. Look what he says. With the tongue we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Do you see what he's doing? He's appealing to creation. James knows that when God created the heavens and the earth, he used his words, let there be, and there was. And after he creates everything, James knows that God uses his mouth, the breath of his mouth, to create man. And it's interesting, in Hebrew, the word breath and spirit are the same word. What James knows is that God made us by the breath of His mouth so that we might use the breath of our mouths to bring healing and fruitfulness into the life of others. God made us in His image, 
And in one of the most significant ways in which he makes us in his image is that we have the ability to speak. And that's the basis of our relationships. God gives us relationships and the ability to speak to one another in them. And what James knows is there's two kinds of speech. There's speech that wounds and there's speech that heals. So listen again to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now the word encourage in Greek doesn't mean to compliment. It means to develop in someone something that is either not there or is there only a little bit. It means to call someone to your side and to teach them, to strengthen them, to push them in a certain direction. In other words, it means to speak loving words something that someone needs to hear. And that's why the word encouragement is used over a hundred times in the New Testament. Because what every writer of the New Testament who uses it means is that God is changing the lives of others through your encouragement, through your words. Do you know the name Benjamin West? It's one of the most famous painters this nation has ever known. He lived back at the Revolutionary War period, and he became a painter in a very interesting way. His mother went out one day, and he said when she left to his sister, who was younger, I'm going to paint your portrait. So he got out uh, some uh, canvas and some paint, and he began to paint her portrait. And when his mother came home, she saw a titanic mess. But instead of scolding him, she picked up the canvas and said, what a beautiful painting of your sister. I love it. And then she kissed him. Later in life, he was asked, what made you become a painter? He said, my mother. When she said she loved me in the face of my mess, that's when I became a painter. That's exactly what James means. He says a wise relationship is one that's always built on words of encouragement. Not just compliment, but words that are meant to build up someone. To bring to the fore something that may just be a kernel in a person's life and to see it develop. Wise relationships are built on healthy words. Second, Notice wise relationships are marked by a certain kind of wisdom. Look at this in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Every time you see the word meek or meekness in the Bible, you can translate it humility because that's what it means. And on the face of it, it seems like James is shifting the topic from words to wisdom, but he isn't. He's linking them. And what he's saying is our words are like food and water. They're necessary. They're what we need to, to thrive and survive. But, he says, there's a problem with our words. Sometimes they can be full of poison. Look at verse 6. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Now that word, 
those words selfish ambition are really one word in Greek, and the word means literally a spirit of rivalry. And Paul uses this in Galatians and in Philippians, every one of his letters. And every time Paul uses that term, selfish ambition or spirit of rivalry, he always goes back to Satan, and he says, that's what Satan's sin was. He was full of pride. He had a spirit of rivalry with God. And then, Paul says, not only did Satan do that in the cosmic realm, he tempted Adam and Eve with the same spirit of rivalry. You can be just like God. In short, it's a spirit of pride. And what James is saying is, that spirit of rivalry, that sense of selfish ambition, that pride is the source from which wounding words emanate. So let's go to another garden, Boston Garden. <laughs> One time Red, Auerbach, Red Auerbach, who was the general manager and owner of the Celtics, Boston Celtics, greatest team ever to play. <laughs> He was asked, what makes Larry Bird so special? And you know what Red Auerbach said? He said, more than any other player I've ever known. <laughs> Listen, more than any other player I've ever known. That's Wilt Chamberlain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell, John Havlicek. Michael Jordan, more than any other player I've ever known, and Red knew them all. Larry Bird sees relationships on the court that no one else does. It's like he's looking at the whole court at one time. He sees where everybody is and where everybody should be. And that's what James is talking about when he's talking about the wisdom of a relationship. It's the ability to see, see clearly. Now, what promotes that? What promotes an ability to see relationships clearly? Whether you're Larry Bird or whether you're James the Apostle. What promotes looking beyond yourself? What promotes Supporting the plans and visions of others. What supports being a team player? What promotes that kind of wisdom? It's humility. What James is saying is the humility we need to have wise relationships is a gift of God. There's only one place we get it, and that's from looking in the mirror of the gospel and seeing who you are and who Jesus is. And according to James, wise relationships always are seen in the context of who we are and who Jesus is. That brings us to the last point. Notice wise relationships are always full of praise. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Do you see what he's saying? Your ability to move away from yourself, away from any natural spirit of rivalry, your ability to do that 
is only possible if you are in love with Jesus. If he is the object of beauty for you. Jonathan Edwards once said, the greatest or the difference between knowledge and wisdom is the difference between knowing that honey is sweet and tasting it on your tongue. Knowledge is knowing that honey is sweet. Wisdom is tasting it on your tongue. In other words, wisdom is personal. Wisdom is experiential. Wisdom is gained through a relationship with one who's redeemed your life. That's why... That's why James says, in an essence, he's saying, pride is stupid. It's always out of touch with reality. It's always singular. It's always selfish. It's always non-relational. You know the Greeks, when they talked about wisdom and gaining it, they thought of it as a personal enterprise, that a person could gather or collect knowledge and in that sense become wise. James says that's an absolute lie. No one can gain wisdom on their own. It's a function of a relationship. James knows that true wisdom only comes in the context of relationships, and wisdom comes in a living relationship with the eternally wise God who makes himself known in Jesus Christ. Look what he says. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, Gentle, humble, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. Who fits that description? Jesus. Do you see what James is saying? He's saying when you look in the mirror of the gospel, on a regular basis, you get wiser. And the way you get wiser and the way you know you get wiser is you begin to see God for more for who he is, and you begin to see yourself for who you are too, who is forgiven and totally accepted. You begin to see that you're, you're no longer in the courtroom. You're no longer under the judgment of God. You begin to see yourself as completely complete in Christ. Therefore, you have no need to look down on someone. You have no need to gain something from someone else. You have no reason to curse. You know, it's interesting. The opposite of blessing to James is not cursing, it's praising. It's the ability to fix your eyes on the one who never ceases to bless you. To focus on him and his blessings will begin to flow through you. You will begin to be peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, impartial, and sincere. Now, I don't know if Kyle, Kyle's friend knew Christ. There's no indication from his story that he knew Christ. I don't know if he ever read the book of James. But what I do know is on that particular Friday afternoon at that time, 45 years ago, he looked a lot like Jesus. And you know the result in Kyle's life? He got a life. He was able to save a life through his words. Wise relationships. They're full of healthy, humble, 
healing, honoring words. Think about that. Amen.